Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be back here with you all. A lot of new faces since the last time I was here with you last year. And uh, it's nice, again, not to be on Skype. Um, Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 5. Follow along with me, Galatians 5, 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, de- if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Beloved, human history is replete, and we can all name examples, we can all name characters from history, we can all name these, these people from history who stood for the cause of freedom, men and women who have fought and died for freedom. We have a constitution built on that premise here in the United States. We can look back through history and see the great warriors, the cultural heroes who gave their lives for freedom. Men have fought, men have bled, they died for freedom from tyrannical governments, freedom of slaves, freedom of individual rights, and freedom from taxed tees. That is the, the story of human history. We can name many of their names. And just as it is the mark of the human soul to yearn for freedom, to yearn for freedom for individuality, to to yearn for the freedom to do as one pleases, rather than to be told how to live. It is equally the mark of the human soul to be naturally and willingly subjected and to subject others. It is naturally the tendency of the human soul to enslave itself to various passions in the flesh. As believers, we know this truth. We know the freedom we have in Christ. Every one of the men and women through history who have fought and bled and died for the cause of human freedom have ultimately done so in vain because that is not true freedom. The cycle of human history, the cycle of human nature is bound by the fate of sin and the fall and the curse. Human nature bends itself to its own pleasures, to enslave itself to its own lusts and passions. And it will do everything it can to subject others to its own lusts and passions as well. Every one of the men and women who gave their lives for freedom did so ultimately in vain, all except one, Jesus our Savior. As believers, we have a greater hope, a greater freedom than what can be offered by any human. Jesus is the only one who ever gave his life in the cause of true freedom, and he did not do so in vain. Through his death, he purchased true, lasting, eternal freedom for those who turn to him in faith. But what does this, this freedom consist of? What does it mean? We've all heard the cause of Christian liberty. We've all heard the claim for Christian freedoms. I have the right to do what I want with my life. You may believe drinking is a sin, but I can, I can, I can freely partake. I'm free in Christ. I can smoke marijuana. I'm free in Christ. I can look at that woman scantily clad and be fine because I'm free in Christ. We've all heard these ridiculous claims for Christian liberty and Christian freedom. As creatures, we were created to serve God. But due to the fall, we willingly subject ourselves to the wrong things. We become enslaved to the lusts of our own passions and pleasures that lead to death. 
Paul knows what true freedom entails. He sets out in Galatians to remind his readers what true freedom is. Service to God in service to one another. Freedom is bound up in the holiness of the corporation of the church and love for one another. In this passage, in Galatians 5, 13 through 15, Paul presents three links in the chain that binds Christian freedom to holiness. Three links in the chain that binds Christian freedom to holiness. You may notice the irony in that statement. Because Christian freedom is bound up in slavery to Christ. True Christian liberty is bound up in holiness, the pursuit of imitation of the character of Christ. Paul understood that the freedom he spoke of, freedom from being bound to law as a system of government regulating daily life, including the Old Testament ceremonies, back into which along with the rabbinic traditions, the Judaizers wanted to drag believers. He is speaking of freedom from the frustrating, oppressive, condemning tyranny of a legal system that was impossible to keep. Paul lays out what true freedom looks like by way of a stark contrast between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. Through the rest of chapter 5, that is his intent. This is life in the flesh. This is life in the spirit. This is the deeds of the flesh, and these are the fruit of the spirit. That is Paul's intent with the rest of this chapter. He's doing this so the Galatians will not be confused and twist the freedom that he is telling them they have. He's telling them this so they do not take that freedom for granted and then use it wrongly. Paul knew there would be those who consciously or otherwise seek to abuse that freedom. And we see it everywhere today, whether it's Christians getting drunk, Christians going out and partying, premarital sex, cohabitation before marriage. We know names in our heads of people we know claim the identity of a follower of Christ who still live in these former passions and desires of the flesh. There have been atrocities and moral depravities that have been committed in the name of Christian freedom. And so Paul is saying that true freedom is not what your passions and not what your flesh thinks it is. True freedom has boundaries. It is still chained to the authority of God. True freedom, biblical freedom, is freedom from slavery to sin when we could do nothing else but sin and freedom to pursue righteousness and holiness in truth. The first link in this chain that Paul presents is a negative command, while the second and third are, are contrasting positive commands. And the first link deals with individuals and their personal responsibility in freedom. The second link then deals with those individuals' responsibilities towards others. And the third link then deals with individuals' responsibility toward God. Another way to put it is that Paul is addressing how Christian freedom ought to function in three different spheres of relationships, the personal, interpersonal, and the spiritual. And altogether, these, these all point to the corporate nature of Christian liberty. Christian freedom bound up in holiness to God in pursuit of righteousness has a corporate dynamic. It's found in unity which is where Paul ends this passage. Paul is not just addressing Christian freedom for kicks and giggles. At this point in his letter, he has already been refuting the Judaizers' false teaching that justification is not just by faith, but also through the external adherence to the rituals of the law, and more specifically, teaching that circumcision was necessary for justification. And so, Paul, having spent his time his energy, his efforts in planting churches and spreading the gospel in Galatia is now, I guess you could say, very perturbed with the Judaizers in the church in Galatia who are undoing 
his gospel work. He is now perturbed that his work is being undone and more. The gospel is being polluted in Galatia. When the works of man are added to the gospel of God, the gospel is not merely diluted, it is inherently polluted. You cannot add something to the gospel without entirely changing the gospel. The gospel, by any other standard or any other means than what God has dictated, is not the gospel. It can have small elements of the gospel, but you have changed the very core of it when you add man and his will, man and his means to it. And so Paul, in the first half of his letter, has responded at length to the accusations that he's not a true apostle. Spoiler alert, he is. He also rebuked the Galatians for abandoning the gospel and accepting the claim that circumcision is necessary for salvation and for accepting the claim that adherence to the law's demands was required of believers. He also reminds the Galatians of the Holy Spirit's proving presence in them, that this Holy Spirit is the seal of their salvation, the seal of their covenant with God. He reminded them that faith was the means of being declared righteous. He reminded them that the requirements of the law are absolute. And if you subject yourself to the law and its tyranny, you are obligated to keep all of it, all of the time, without the smallest bit of failure. The law is a demanding master. He also reminds them that the law was given not to save, but to point them to Christ who can save, who does save. And so Paul appeals to the Galatians to return to the true gospel that he delivered to them at first. His care and his concern is seen everywhere through this letter. His frustration is evident as well, but his care comes forth everywhere. Notice what he says in verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brethren. He's not abandoned them. He's not given up hope. He's endeared to them. He still loves them. His care is evident. His utter disgust with the Judaizers is also apparent. Look at verse 12. Look what he says in verse 12. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. The requirement of circumcision the, the marks in the flesh required by the law and required by the Judaizers. Paul tells them, go back and get another one. If you are so committed to it, go back and do it again. Look back at verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Paul's frustrated with those demanding adherence to the requirements of the law polluting the gospel. Elsewhere, remember what Paul says about Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. Before the giving of the law, he was declared righteous. So the first link in this chain is the pursuit of of holiness. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Called to freedom. This is a purpose statement. This is the purpose for which believers are called. We are called to be free, not just into freedom in Christ, but we are called for the purpose of being free in Christ. This is the blessing of salvation in Christ, free from the law, free from its demands, free to live in the abundance of grace. Paul makes it abundantly clear that freedom now is at the core of the gospel. All believers have been called to freedom, and this is not a benefit for some and not others. This is a blessing for all who have faith in Christ. 
This calling is one in which we are all passive recipients. When we come to Christ, He calls us when we are dead in sin. Corpses can't call for help. Dead slaves can't raise an insurrection. It's a matter of divine grace. We are passive recipients in this call and this blessing of freedom. But this calling is also purposeful. Just as much as Israel and all her sin could not remove herself from the grace of God's call on her life, neither can we. This calling is irrevocable, according to Romans 11. It points to our new identity and our new allegiance to a new master. There's also a negative purpose. Don't usurp your freedom. See, while being passive recipients, being called into freedom, being called for the purpose of freedom, we are not passive partakers, we are active partakers. We are not just called for the purpose of being free, but we are called for the purpose to be free. To act free, to act in freedom. This freedom has boundaries, namely, don't sin. As simple as that. Don't take this freedom so lightly that you allow your flesh to indulge in its passions. Look back at verse 13. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That word that Paul uses there for opportunity has the idea of a base of operations. Think of a military outposting, a military base from which they gather intel and they gather their forces, they gather their resources to be able to then launch an attack out. And Paul is saying, Do not let your flesh use this freedom as an opportunity to sin. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your passions and your pleasures. The pleasures of the flesh. What is the flesh? The flesh is that sinful inclination of fallen mankind to pursue its own will and desires. It is the old man as opposed to the new man. Paul is saying that to allow the flesh to have a base of operations in your life, to allow that opportunity for the flesh to continue to rule, is to not partake in the freedom of Christ. It is a return to the old man. It is an abuse of freedom to use that freedom for self-willed, self-indulgent pleasure-seeking. To indulge the flesh and defend the action by referencing Christian freedom is the height of scandal, spiritual scandal. Many sins, much disunity in the church has been committed in the name of Christian freedom. The actions or the deeds of the flesh, as Paul calls it later in chapter 5, were all we could do before grace. Before being called to freedom, there was nothing we could do but be enslaved and act as slaves of sin. But this freedom has given the opportunity for believers to do what God wants out of a motivation to love and honor and serve Him. Paul's letters are filled with the admonitions to flee sin and that which is in accord with the old man and to pursue righteousness. 
Listen to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. 1 Timothy 6.11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality, glorify God in your body. The freedom we have been called to is a call to pursue freedom and holiness, righteousness, imitation of Christ. Paul is extraordinarily clear. Freedom is opportunity for holiness, not a base of operations for fleshly fulfillment and indulgence. Therefore, by way of contrast to this negative command to not abuse freedom, Paul Paul says to treat yourself as if you have no freedom. He says, serve one another in love. Look what he says again in verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is possible Paul is now looking back at verse 6 in chapter 5 and and drawing the reader's attention back to verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And so in pressing home his instruction on Christian freedom, he's pointing out that not all freedom is opposed to slavery. Boggles the 21st century mind to think about it that way. Not all freedom is opposed to slavery. One commentator puts it this way. He says, there is at least one form of slavery that is not incompatible with Christian freedom. This slavery is impelled by the spirit within, not imposed by an external authority. It is a slavery that is impelled from within. It is something that in our freedom To live for Christ, we are enslaved to Him in righteousness. The law and its its demands could not bring meaning or give freedom. However, the law of love, the perfect law of Christ, does bring true, meaningful freedom through slavery, through service to one another in faith. Paul is drawing a contrast here between pseudo-freedom that seeks self-fulfillment and true freedom that seeks the best for others. Paul is using a Greek antonym here for freedom. I'm sure you all are, are very familiar with the Greek term doulos, servant, slave. Paul uses it of himself consistently throughout his epistles. It is the direct Greek antonym to the term for freedom in verse 13. And he's saying, you are free, now be enslaved. And the 21st century mind says there was a war fought 150 years ago to keep that from happening. I don't think so. But it is a slavery, it is a service impelled from within by the Holy Spirit, not an external force By an external master, it is an internal, spirit-indwelling, impelled desire to love one another in service. Paul is saying, through love, be slaves to one another. What does this, this loving slavery, this loving service look like? It seeks the good and benefit of another, even at the cost and sometimes the detriment of benefit to self. There's no second thought. Paul is saying that our freedom is bound up in service to one another, out of concern for their good. I know a lady in college, several ladies in college, but one in particular stood out. One summer she had worked really hard to raise money to be able to go back to school in order to pay her bills. 
somewhere around $3,000. And over the summer, a missionary that her church supported came home on furlough and was raising support and speaking at her church, and she felt burdened to be able to give toward, uh, toward their funds. And she gave the entirety of her sum out of love for missions, out of love for that missionary. She gave the entirety of what she had worked so hard to, to make to go back to school, she gave it all up for missions. She gave it so that missionary would be able to go back to the field and serve. This is the kind of love that Paul is here commanding. Self-sacrificial giving of oneself for the benefit of another. It's a reciprocal service as well. It's not just a loving enslavement of yourself to each other. It is also reciprocal. Where do you go when you are tired and worn out? When you're burned out, what do you do? Who do you run to? When you need encouragement, who is it that the Lord has provided? The fellowship of the body around you. This is what Jesus himself said would mark his followers and set them apart from the rest of the world. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It is a reciprocal service. It's not just me serving you. It's not just you serving me. It is collectively, corporately, individually enslaving ourselves to one another in love. The means and the motivation of this service is love. If we love our brothers and sisters, if we truly desire their best for God's glory, then we will serve willingly. Paul just got done making sure the Galatians know that self-fulfillment is an abuse of Christian freedom. And here he's making it clear that the solution to self-fulfillment is to deny self and serve others sacrificially. What does this look like? Now, unless we get the idea of Valentine's Day hearts, Tums with Hug Me written on them, romantic intimations, cultural notions when we think of this love and what it means to love biblically, look at how Paul describes love. 1 Corinthians 13. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Here's how Paul describes love. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Look at Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her 
love for one another is not ooey-gooey, mushy feelings. Love for one another is bleeding on behalf of another, dying on behalf of another, sacrificing my good for your gain, sacrificing your good for the good of someone else. My time, my energy, my emotions, I have the freedom to use them how I wish. In the pursuit of holiness, Paul says, use them to serve one another. So what then is love? In a word, it is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Love, biblically, requires a willful laying aside of what is best for you in order to give the best to someone else. Christ gave up the comforts of his heavenly habitation in love in order to redeem a people for himself. He willingly laid down his own life in agony to take a punishment that was not his rightfully, to take sin that he did not commit, to bear it as a burden. In love, he did this. Stephen Charnock Puritan wrote this of Christ's willful love. He says, the highest assurance of his love was the loss of his life. His taking the similitude of weak flesh and running through all the degrees of reproaches and punishment, even to the grave itself, were voluntary acts. The workings of his love that he might reduce us from a deserved hell to advance us to an undeserved heaven and make us partakers of that blessedness which he had voluntarily quitted for our sakes. He willingly put himself into the condition of a servant, which is to be at the beck and call of another and have no will but that of his masters. He submitted his reason and affections to God to be employed in his work according to his will. He had an absolute power over his own body Yet he made a free offer of it and subjected it to the penalty to be inflicted on him. So Paul calls us to use our freedom in sacrifice, to be enslaved to one another in love. And what was Paul's reason for commanding service to one another in love? He makes it plain, he makes it clear that the reason service of this kind is important is because the whole law is fulfilled in this service to one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in service to one another. Jesus himself said that the whole law is summed up in two commandments, love God and love others. He also made it clear that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And so the whole law can be summed up in this statement, you will love your neighbor as yourself. This is a really fun statement in Greek. Paul is quoting Leviticus 19 here. And it's a future tense verb. You will love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a, an imperative. It's not love your neighbor as yourself. You will love your neighbor as yourself. There's an imperatival force there that is so much more emphatic because it is a future tense. You will love your neighbor as yourself. There's this underlying promise to it. You are claiming the name of Christ. Therefore, you will love your neighbor as yourself. It is a statement of fact. It's not a milder or more gentler imperative. It is a statement of fact that the people of God will indeed love their neighbors as themselves. It's a very emphatic way of saying to love your neighbor. This future tense leaves no room for potential. If you are the people of God, you will love your neighbor as yourself. not just in some sense of duty, but out of a profound sense of self-abasing 
love, a love that considers the interests of others as being more important than one's own. Because this love is the mark, not a mark, but the mark of biblical Christianity. It is the mark of those who claim to know, imitate, and follow Christ. Listen as I read John 13. John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There's no way out. Love is not an option. Freedom in Christ, freedom to pursue holiness and love for one another and service to one another is not an option for the believer. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who's your neighbor? Everyone. There's no one outside that bound. No one outside that definition. If they are human, they bleed red. If they are made in the image of God, they are your neighbor. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. And the third link in the chain that binds Christian freedom to holiness is peace with one another. The pursuit of holiness, service and love, and now peace with one another. If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Paul is further elaborating this by addressing divisions that must have arisen in the Galatian churches. There are those who would have been under the influence of the Judaizers. They would have recoiled at the thought of repudiating the law, freedom from the law, living not according to circumcision, not according to the, to the demands of the law. There would have been those who saw freedom in Christ as something to usurp for their own pleasures and their own passions some twisted form of Christian hedonism, but some way to pursue their own. And there were probably those who had a well-balanced idea. But Paul is addressing the disunity that would have happened when the three would have come together. When the body of Christ is together, there are those of us who tend toward works. There are some who, who think that if I do X, Y, and Z... I will have holiness. There are those who believe once saved, always saved. I can do anything I want. I have Christian freedom and liberty to do as I please because God has saved me. Now I do not need to live according to his standards because he saved me. I prayed my prayer. When those three come together under the corporate title of the church, and they sit together, they worship together, there's going to be disunity because the core of their belief is not the same. So Paul is drawing a bleak picture of what a community without love looks like, what a community that pursues self over others looks like. If you bite and devour one another. That is a bleak picture. That's a horrid picture. It, he's painting a picture that, that looks like a pack of wild animals in a feeding frenzy, preying on one another, ripping and clawing and biting at one another in a frenzied mass of chaos and fighting over their own personal wants and desires. And the result is the gospel being polluted. The result is the gospel and the church before the world standing blemished, not as the bride of Christ dressed in pure white, but as a tattered and destroyed corpse before the eyes of the world. Paul's saying, watch your back. If this is what you use your freedom for, watch out. 
Don't expect not to be bitten if you're biting. If you refuse to love one another, don't expect to be loved in return. Even worse, if you expect to bite and devour one another, don't expect to be loved in return. If the church is squabbling, its members need to be careful that they do not consume one another. Don't let your flesh take control of your freedom to the point that the reciprocity in your life is self-interest resulting in bloodshed and bondage to sin rather than loving service to one another. One produces freedom and one produces sin and enslavement to it. A church in conflict is not fulfilling the law of God. A church in conflict not only is not fulfilling the law of God, it is indeed marring the image of Christ to the world. As Christ said, the world would know those who are his disciples by their love for one another. Division in the church body is grotesquely sinful. It is gruesome. The world is watching the church. And when the church is fighting, the world is like a bystander on the street watching a someone just standing on the street corner, hacking off limbs and beginning to eat them. It's a disgusting picture spiritually. Church infighting is appalling, frightful, ghastly, grim, grisly, horrendous, horrid, horrific, lurid, morbid, ugly, monstrous. I went to thesaurus.com for that. (laughs) But you get the picture. It cannot be overstated how gruesome, how horrific the picture of church infighting and disunity is when slave when slaves of Christ are pursuing slavery to their own passions. In conclusion, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. As we conclude, listen as I read Romans chapter 6, 15 and following. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Pursuit of holiness. Service and love to one another. and unity or peace in the body. They are three links in a chain that must bind every individual believer to holiness. Christian freedom is not an opportunity for the flesh. It is freedom to pursue holiness, freedom to pursue obedience.
read the rest of Galatians 5 and see the contrast that Paul sets up and fleshes out between the flesh and the spirit, a life in the flesh and a life in the spirit. If you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Just a few questions and application, and as we close out, ask yourselves, beloved, am I allowing anything in my life other than the righteousness of Christ, other than the holiness of Christ, to enslave me? If so, what is it and why is it so important? Am I preferring my own interests over the interests of others? What am I willing to sacrifice my friends, my children, my coworkers, my wife, my daughters, my sons, my husband? What am I willing to sacrifice them in order to have? Do I prefer my own sense of Christian liberty, my own sense of Christian freedom, my right to Christian freedom over my preference and my deference to my brothers and sisters in Christ? What am I unwilling to sacrifice for the cause of Christ? What am I unwilling to give up in service to my fellow believers? What perceived Christian liberty am I unwilling to release because somebody else struggles with that? How can I practically go about loving those around me sacrificially? What can I sacrifice now, today, this moment, tomorrow, this week for the best of somebody else? What can I forego so that they can undergo my love? How can I love my spouse, my children, my pastor, my friends, my brothers, my sisters in Christ in a manner reminiscent of Christ's voluntary giving and offering of himself? How am I presenting myself as a slave of righteousness? Am I presenting myself as a slave of righteousness? If not, why not? Beloved, if your, if your life is not marked by the same selfless laying down of your life, giving up of your own good for the good of another, in the same way that it marked the life of Christ, there is cause, good cause, for you to take the advice of Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 to test yourself to see if you are in the faith. The test of being a follower of Christ is service and love for one another, being bound up in love to one another. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. If you fail the test, repent. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. The greatest antidote of self-interest, the greatest antidote to the poison of self-interest is love for one another. Sacrifice. Do you struggle to love someone else in your life? choose to do something in love for them, whether they recognize it or not. The greatest antidote for bitterness in the soul is to love the one you are bitter against. Bitterness is only ever a pill that we swallow trying to poison someone else. The only antidote is sacrifice. Bow with me.
Father, thank you for the unbelievable freedom that we have in your Son. The freedom that you have called us to. The freedom to pursue holiness for a sure hope of salvation and eternal life with you. Thank you for the freedom you give us not to indulge the flesh, but to love one another. Father, convict our hearts of our own selfish desires, our own passions, where our lives have pursued our fleshly desires over the good of someone else. Help us to pursue love for one another in holiness, in service to one another, to pursue peace in the body of Christ, to represent to the world what it looks like for a body to be unified, to love one another, to show the mark of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his willing sacrifice on behalf of his people. May it move us in worship and in service. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Joel.